0: Hello and welcome to the Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven, and today I'm going to do something I hope just a little bit different and interesting, and that is I'm going to present the program as a magazine with several different items in it and see how you like that because I do want to hear from you again afterwards. Um, Either use SpeakPipe, which is on the website, which is just a one click way of recording your thoughts, or and for future ideas as well. Or email in, emails are there, or whatever. Just just let me know what you think of the format. Now today, I want to talk about three different specific things. A couple of interviews that I've done with the BBC um, reflect some fascinating subjects that are on the ground at the moment. The first is that in social care, and it's about its urgent need for funding. Now the government's allowing some council tax to be ring fenced. We've heard that, but the Local Government Association and others are saying that's absolutely inadequate. Even then, and what it still will prevent—not well, sorry—will not prevent do doing is most councils actually still making cuts in essential services. So we've got a real dilemma here. Uh, is it enough? What should happen? I mean, and what should happen to support the most vulnerable in society? You know, whether it's the frail elderly or those that need 24-hour care. What funding can we find to satisfy the very basic needs for care of, of this huge and growing group within society? Now, the second interview reflects the dilemma of finding out that uh, perhaps a member of staff has participated in some inappropriate activity. Not enough to make it a criminal offence, but enough to worry others as to their behaviour and how you actually go about that. And the, the story was about the uh, council in um, North Somerset at which a particular member of staff was found to have some fairly uh, inappropriate uh, messages um, on their Facebook page concerning um, teenage girls. So we'll have a, a look at that and a listen to that. But the third and possibly the main discussion point today is something that I haven't done anything about before which essentially is reflect a bit about the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse that's going on now under the uh, chair womanship of Professor Alexis J. I mean, we all may remember that she's of course the fourth chair in place since the inception of this inquiry and it did look pretty chaotic for a while. however, I attended a a conference day in Manchester just last week at which she and her team were present and made presentations and I must admit that I'm a bit more reassured after that that the actual uh, inquiry itself is back on track. I hope it's not going to be as long in reporting as Chilcot was for the Iraq war And I believe that there are going to be, in April 2018, there's going to be an interim report issued with recommendations then. So, essentially, there will be some come out before the final end of the inquiry itself. So this is fascinating, and I'm going to talk about the different parts of it, the different bits of it, and how you can keep in touch with it. So, I have quite an agenda, but at the same time, I think uh, quite interesting to do a magazine programme. So, as I said, the first issue was to do with the social care and our vulnerable elderly and our vulnerable uh, others within society who need our total care and far, far more funding than we seem to be making available at the moment.
1: Well, David Niven, as I said, is here this morning. A great name, by the way, David.
0: Uh, it just shows you're over 25.
1: Yeah, it does show I'm over 26. Okay. Um, so, David, uh, tell me, uh, the the crisis in social care is not really a, a surprise. is it? Could councils have prepared for this better?
0: Um, I'm, I'm not sure about that question because, obviously, they've been trying to struggle with all the various um, austerity measures that have been demanded of them as well. It's not just, obviously, health, but this particular one focuses on that. What I would say, though, is that it's unfortunate because... The most, the, the most vulnerable people in society often are the poorest as well, and they often live in areas where there is a, a much reduced council tax. Some of the more northern, the northern authorities, for example, where the actual amount of money that the authorities take in is far less because the council tax is smaller for, uh, for them, and therefore it's a double whammy, if you see what I mean. Mm. The, the most vulnerable getting punished in the most vulnerable areas. So, I mean, there's that, but also we do hope, don't we, that the people who uh, enticed us to vote for Brexit weren't lying to us, because one of the promises that millions of people decided to vote for Brexit on was £350 million a week, because that's what we pay the European Union, and that would go straight into the National Health Service. I remember that vividly uh. as a promise, and, and you know, everybody was quite excited about that, because it certainly felt that that would sweep away an awful lot of the problems. And if you couple that with the fact that we're sort of 13th out of the top 15 European countries in terms of the amount of spend that we have on health and social care, I mean, we're way back in the first place anyway. So it's a whole combination of things that is going to make big, big problems for the National Health Service.
1: And and do, do you think it is the, the attitude of of the National Health Service now that that much of of, of the care uh, is 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 handed on to social workers now? It's handed on to the social care of councils now.
0: Oh. I, I, See, of course, yes, because I mean they're dedicated to protect the most vulnerable, and they the 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 rising elderly population and the rising elderly frail population um, because of obviously people living much longer, etc., and and being maintained much longer because of the better health care that can be available to them. I mean, yes, I mean because that that just means that the the caseloads of social workers working in that particular area are growing. And the amount of money to pay social workers to get any extra in to actually do it is disappearing. And so the maths are there. It's really unfortunate that the priorities of this government don't seem to be heading towards those of our most vulnerable citizens.
1: But in, in, in your view, is it a case of sort of uh, uh, kicking this problem into the long grass and pushing uh, people who need care onto different agencies and not, nobody really taking full responsibility for it?
0: Exactly. And, and many, I mean, I think the King's Fund, who are a very reputable kind of research organisation, did a study last year to show just how far behind much of Europe we are already, sorry, using Europe again, but, you know, just as a comparator to us. And so, in, in effect, You know, I don't think there's a central plan here. Unfortunately, I think we're just chipping away at the edges or or whatever the analogy is, you know, just trying to sort of stem the tide until such time it's going to be a real crisis and effectively of huge money is going to have to be found from elsewhere. And, of course, elsewhere is therefore going to suffer. Planning, you need much, much more better planning and much recognition of the, the kind of geographical problems in this country.
1: I mean but well, what is the 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 answer here David because uh, you know for a start anyone with a house uh, who needs social care or, go, or to go into to care um, has to sell the house or the, that's now been, I don't know what's happening with that now nobody seems to know whether it's been overturned or not because people still are, I know people still have to sell their houses to look after their elderly um, but that was seen as unfair um, because there are people who, who don't have a house who don't have to pay anything towards their social care so all of these things, what is the answer?
0: Root and branch um, a complete, you, you know how at the moment we're having these You have these major inquiries whether it's Chilcot looking into yeah. Iraq or whether it's um, Alexis J look, looking into child sexual exploitation and so forth massive inquiries. I really do think we need something that churns this whole problem around and comes up with some imagination. You, I mean steal from the neighbours, steal from other countries, look at the way that they do it, look at how they actually target and prioritise money much earlier on for social care mm. um, I mean it just beggars belief that this isn't recognised as a serious enough problem so that we're all arguing over sort of virtual pennies when it comes to actually asking local authorities to uh, rob Peter to pay Paul
1: but you've got to wonder is it just because it's, it's social care is just not very sexy it's just not it doesn't, it doesn't get the you know all the politicians excited why, why is it that it's ignored
0: I think Probably lots of answers to it, but the first one that sprung to mind when you asked the question there was, um, well, it's one of these long-term—you don't see it right in front of your face—creeping mm. problems. You know, it's a bit like asking twenty-five-year-olds why they haven't really seriously started a pension. Yeah, it, it's that kind of feeling too. I think
1: uh, there's a sense that none of us think we're going to end up there. Yeah,
0: exactly. Mm. And and and, th- and those of us those of us that recognise we are are still a bit bereft of, of, of ideas because w- what we've got to draw on in terms of actual the materials to construct something are pretty thin
1: it's a, it's an extraordinary thing is it is, is money going to fix it
0: mm. not not entirely but mm. it certainly would help you know I mean it's the old story of course it would help people, but as long it's going to be spent properly I mean you can't just chuck money at it and, and ask people who've got no idea to construct something what you need to do is get a hold of some people with imagination and experience and then and actually then construct something that lasts for 20 years as opposed to sort of year on year on year.
2: Does it
1: frustrate you looking at, at the situation of social care I mean last week on this program we were talking about um, elderly people who are not even having their basic needs met they've been forced into this sort of care in the community if you like um, and, and nobody's even going in to feed them.
0: Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, you, you, the, one way people tried to think, oh, well, look, this is how we can best spread our resources is by uh, being absolutely clock watchers, you know, this 20-minute per visit thing or whatever, um, and all the various agencies that are being kind of brought in from the private sector to actually supplement, you know, care, um, domiciliary care, et cetera. Um, Obviously, I've got to make a profit because that's their whole resin depth. uh, And so at the end of the day, they're still stuck in that problem. And let's not remember, it's not just the elderly we're talking about here. I mean, something like, I don't know, a quarter of a million young carers missing out on their childhood Mm. up and down this country because they're having to look after dependent relatives on top of actually trying to do school or whatever else. And they're often the unsung heroes and heroines of the community.
1: That's an extraordinary ongoing issue, isn't it? David, thanks. Just before I let you go, were your parents fans?
0: Were my parents, pardon?
1: Fans uh, of David Niven.
0: Well, no, my, I mean, I, I tell you that my, um, my, my first given name is Robert, Robert David. Oh. No, no, but, but ever since the age of dot, my, my father in the war was Graham But everybody called him David because, like, he was the big film star at the time. Oh,
1: of course, it was his nickname.
0: David, David, David. You know, it was almost some one of these inevitable tags. I don't mind now because it's only, as I said, people over twenty-five that seem to.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's brilliant. It's a brilliant name. Uh, Thank you very much indeed, there, David Niven, uh, former chair of the British Association of Social Workers.
0: All right, so we're into the second interview now, which is about um, finding out that a member of staff has behaved in an inappropriate way, the dilemma of dealing with that, how one authority, North Somerset in this case, did, and uh, what people are talking about. So let's have a listen to this.
2: Dr David Niven, who's an expert in child protection. David, good morning. Oh, hello, Emma. Let's start with Matthew Hill's final point there. When something on Facebook isn't criminal but is inappropriate, how should a public organisation handle it, like the police and, and indeed in this case North Somerset Council?
0: Well, my first reaction would be that the person, um, if they were the ones who actually posted it, and we've got to remember that, because social media can sometimes be a very porous uh, medium and other people can do things. But if the person admitted that it was them that actually posted whatever it was or it became evident that it was, then my personal view would be that they should be suspended until such time as the investigations were complete and the interviews had been taken place with the person to actually try and determine whether or not, you know, this was their particular points of view and this is how they, they looked at the world and this is how they looked at children. Because essentially, for me, that does represent danger.
2: Mr. Jellings denies any wrongdoing and hasn't been convicted of an offence. But, oh. but given what the Inside Out programme has uncovered, would you expect him to now be working for an organisation like the National Health Service?
0: I mean, again, it depends on uh, on what access he had and what people he was working with. But l- let me make this point. You, you know, the pl- when people do um, uh, enhanced checks on people before they are given, you know, they-, they-, they come into positions and what's called an enhanced check takes place. Mm. That now looks at or has done for years um, what would be considered to be sort of what they call soft intelligence in the police such as you know whether or not people have actually said or done things in the past or not not been convicted but been being kind of um, accused of something that might well be considered to be inappropriate or dangerous, and that does count against them. It used to be things that were considered in the back rooms of police stations you know on color coded card indexes you know suspicions about people because that's now what's taken into consideration when you're looking for people who are going to be employed um, contact with or working with children or vulnerable adults. So to my mind, it comes into that same purview. And look at the day we're talking on when the new national cybercrime intelligence unit is actually taking over and beginning to protect us against that because cybercrime and um, sexual exploitation of children online is an enormous problem in this country and all over Europe and the world, well, the, the, the whole world, to be quite frank with you, And therefore, anybody who demonstrates a proclivity towards kind of, if you like, um, towards actually sort of saying things about children in a horrible, violent way, in my view, has absolutely no place in in an organisation that is um, committed to protecting children.
2: It also raises an issue for everyone, doesn't it? In that, you know, I, I work for the BBC and have done for nearly 10 years. And the way I conduct myself, even when I am not at work, is subject to scrutiny. So, you know, I have to conduct myself in an appropriate way. And, and it's no good me saying, well, it's my own Facebook page or it's my own Twitter account. I conduct myself in that way. And, and I suppose there is a question around employers and employees about the way people conduct themselves out of work or are we treading into privacy territory there?
0: Well, my own personal view is that um, there should be... <clears throat> a certain amount of um, access allowed to people who are um, under suspicion of any kind of offences or any kind of impropriety against children. For example, I mean, and I think people should, do you remember the baby P case, Peter Connolly, the the baby that died? Mm -hmm. The mother who uh, who actually was uh, convicted in the end always swore blind that she never had a boyfriend in the house, he wasn't bad, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yet the day before the baby died... She posted on Facebook um, all sorts of sort of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, laugh, 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 all about her new fella who lived with her. And only if people had actually looked at her Facebook page, you never just know quite what the future would have been. And I do think that people now should a privatise their own Facebook accounts. Ordinary families should, because that's where a lot, of, a lot of paedophiles and other sex offenders actually get material from, but at the same time I do believe that the authorities now should have a right to examine people's social media, but actually just to, to, as part of investigations, to actually just see who is a threat out there in the community.
2: Interesting to get your views, David. Thank you. David Niven, child protection expert there. David used to be former chair of the British Association of Social Workers.
0: Right then. well we have their moral, criminal, ethical issues. And um, there'll constantly be questions like that being asked about those that we allow to be part of the safeguarding landscape. Right, so what I'd like to do now is actually um, introduce a subject the podcast that we haven't really talked about before. I'm hoping too that we can get some um, interviews with the people involved in this um, as time goes by and that's the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse. Now this um, conference that I went to about it took place last week in Manchester and the people involved were Professor Alexis Jay, who's leading the inquiry, and her core team, um, who were present as well, explaining the three different particular uh, core issues of the inquiry. Um, it, so, it, the issues, projects, they've got three. Now, the first one is what they call the Truth Project. Now, the actual inquiry was set up to look at the ways that organisations in England and Wales may have failed to protect children from sexual abuse in the past and so they felt that they needed something innovative and uh, attractive enough to survivors and victims of abuse who may well not have wanted to give public testimony but still wanted to talk about what happened to them and so this truth project was set up as a way of listening to people who were sexually abused as children in order to understand what happened in the past and what organisations that they were involved with at the time was how they responded so that we can learn lessons for the future so i think it's a very good thing this truth project and so it gives them an opportunity to share their views and it's confidential and that is the crux so all support is available both pre the, 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 the interview, if you like, and after the interview as well in terms of counselling, support and just general kind of um, arm round the shoulders as well as kind of any um, issues that have been brought up. The only caveat that they have is that if a disclosure is made that concerns a, a, a child who's still alive and being cared for obviously they have to notify the authorities immediately to look into that so that's the basic kind of thing about the truth project and um, the second one and the second project the core projects of the if you like that the inquiry is looking into is called uh, the public hearings project and that essentially will look like a conventional inquiry with uh, with panels and boards and so forth um, where witnesses come forward they're asked questions, they give evidence and it's on oath and they are subject to cross-examination because this essentially is an inquiry with teeth that can not only compel people to come and give evidence but will have uh, have a, a great deal of weight in any pronouncements that come after that Now just going into this in a bit more detail, the actual inquiry itself will have um, the chair, as I mentioned, Professor Alexis Jay, and a three strong panel that uh, will be assisting her. But it's also supported by a victim and survivors consultative panel um, in which I think it's about seven people who all are victims and survivors of abuse have come together and um, will give independent advice. They are not compelled um, to do anything except for say what they think and say what they see. And I think that's a very refreshing um, attitude to take. Now, generally speaking, the inquiry will um, have four, as it says, I'm reading now really, four thematic strands that the focus of their work. The first is cultural, looking at the attitudes and behaviours and the values within institutions that prevent us from stopping child sexual abuse. They'll look at the structural side of things, therefore the legislation, the governance and the organisational frameworks between institutions. They'll look at the financial side, the funding and resource arrangements for relevant institutions and services. Finally, the look at the professional and the political, focusing on the leadership, professional practice issues for all of those who actually work or volunteer in these relevant institutions. And there are many institutions who will be under the microscope for this inquiry, ranging from charities with res- with either who have or who had residential responsibilities for children and young people, um, various church organisations from the big to the small, um, local authorities, providers of um, care, and many others, including, interestingly enough, all the inspection organisations that um, have as part of their remit to actually look into child sexual abuse. And so effectively, we're going to have a particularly wide landscape and therefore it will take quite some time. And as I said in the introduction, I think that the um, preliminary recommendations coming out in about April 2018 will be welcome because otherwise it could just drag on for years and years and years and finally people might forget what the whole thing was about in the first place. Now, the third um, particular core project that's taking place is that of a research project and that has got particular um challenges to it but at the same time they've given themselves a very challenging remit and that they will get the best that exists they will dig down until they do they will they will look at a vast um, range of information Publications, etc., in order to really drill down deeply into our whole um, attitude towards child sexual exploitation, our whole history of what we understand it to be, and also where all the gaps might be. Now, they will look at, um, in, in a series of seminars, they're also going to have uh, things like best practice from abroad, they're going to look at the victims' experiences. They're going to look for the criminal justice system and how it deals with victims and survivors. They're going to look at social and political narratives. And finally, they're also going to look at the health aspects um, and how the entire health service responded to both individual and collective victims and survivors of abuse. And as I said, the inspection reports will be scrutinised and researched and the uh, inspectorial organizations are going to be scrutinized themselves so a very very wide framework here now i mentioned the victims and survivors consultative panel most definitely they are um they made a presentation at this conference two very brave and Interesting um, people who had been survivors of um, quite severe abuse themselves, but now the way that they were taking on their responsibilities, the way that they were seeing themselves as advisors, the way that they felt that they could be part of making a difference, part of making a change, I think was excellent. And also, to be fair too, they rebutted a lot of what they called misunderstandings in the media about um, arguments and disagreements and rows within the victims and survivors community, they felt that had been over-egged, over-exaggerated and that now the inquiry had settled down and was working well together and we were looking forward to their input and they were looking forward to their input in a, a period of calm as opposed to what could have been called a period of chaos, as the first year or so of the inquiry demonstrated quite a lot of public um, misgivings. So, what can we do? What can we, those of us that are involved in this work, as well as those of us that have got an interest in learning about this work, what can we do? Well, the inquiry is actually committed to having a, an outcome by, well, certainly substantially by 2020. But as I said, there will be interim reports published, the first of which I believe is in the spring of 2018. And people can get involved still. There will be helplines. There's a website, which is www iicsa.org.uk which I'll put on the uh, text side of the podcast there's an information line 0800 917 1000 there's an email contact at iicsa.org.uk and you can even write to them but what I do suggest is that you trust them more That's how I felt. I wasn't sure as to whether or not all the initial chaos in this inquiry had led to such a weakening of the structure and a weakening of the credibility that a lot of people would be finding it very difficult to come forward with any kind of true trust. But after that presentation in Manchester, I felt far more reassured. And just to remind ourselves that that's independent of government, It covers England and Wales either only, but that's quite big in itself. It's allowing victims and survivors to actually share their experiences, which is a a first in the Truth Project. They're going to make regular feedback reports. They're going to ask for information from as wide a network as they possibly can, and that means you. And it's mainly to do with institutional Abuse, yes, but it also can involve cases that were reported but people felt were never acted on properly. That can be looked into as well. So it's big, it's ambitious, it doesn't have an absolute finite date, although they've got some target times. And although they can't actually prosecute and convict people on a criminal basis, they or they and they can't you know, get involved with compensation, it still has a very substantive remit in terms of both credibility, responsibility, and in terms of the power of the outcomes that they make. So I'm going to constantly give you an update on this, but um, it's going to last for quite some time, and I think the good thing to do now would be to get some guests on uh, who are actually participating on the um, staffing side of the inquiry, and actually take regular updates from them. So for now, thank you very much indeed for listening, as usual. Thank you to um, Alba Digital Media for the technical support in uh, making this podcast, and please keep coming back with these ideas, feedback, and and thoughts about the podcast because it's yours as much as mine and although I greatly enjoy doing it I'm always wide open to suggestions as to how we can actually improve things maybe this magazine format is it anyway until the next time thanks for listening